Hi, welcome to another episode of the Adoption Files, the cult-like aspects of adoption. This is episode number six. Joining me today are my co-host, Lynn Grubb, and our guest for today, Becca Dragon. She's an adoptee advocate and a writer. She also um, has videos up on TikTok. So thank you for being here today, Becca. Hi, it's nice to be here. Hey. Hey. Hey, y'all. <laughs> so we uh, generally start out by giving kind of our definition of what we think of when we hear the word cult or cult-like. For me, it comes from the Oxford definition of a cult, and that is a misplaced or excessive admiration for a particular person or thing. And then Lynn, what's your definition? I like the one um, that I borrowed from a cult expert. It's a high control movement, which I think fits adoption very well. And Becca, what do you think when you hear cult or cult-like? Well, I wouldn't say I have like a, a succinct definition, but I would definitely say that it's that, I mean, because sometimes they think of group, but really one person can be a cult, right? A cult leader. So I would say it's a very non-forgiving and non-moving set of beliefs and worldview that creates a very definitive wall between insiders and outsiders and that those who are considered the outsiders from from the inside of those strict beliefs um usually there is um the separation is made even deeper by mischaracterizing them as evil or wrong Okay, and we know that we can experience that as adoptees if we step outside of what the adoption narrative wants us to um, live, perpetuate, sure. experience. Yeah. yeah. When we don't embody, when we do not embody um, a very specific narrative that is expected of us, then even though we are the ultimate insider in adoption, we are in that moment considered the ultimate outsider in adoption and we are anathematized, we are shunned, we are shamed, we are told to find the nearest bridge, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, that's such a fun thing when you're faced with that kind of almost like mm. violent, threatening yes. response from people. And you wrote in a blog post for your blog, I called the cult of adoption and we wanted to talk with you about that today and sure. Lynn would like to to um, start out with an excerpt from the article Lynn you want to read that sure will Jane was a child raised in a religious cult she was told her entire childhood our leader is benevolent and beautiful and only allows things to happen to you that are the best for you in order to be protected from the harms of the world and to know your true self, you must thank him every day, validate him as the one real vessel of truth on this earth and in heaven, and never imagine what the world outside of the cult is like, because your alternative would be nothing but weeping and gnashing of teeth or being shuffled around from one painful destination to another, even unto death. Jane grows up and she becomes a missionary for the cult. She writes social media posts about these beliefs and shares her testimony with others. She fundraises for the cult and sometimes goes door to door trying to share the cult's beliefs. The more she shares what she believes, the more she protects herself from the big bad alternative, which would mean destruction and even death for her. Uh, pictures of a leader adorn every room in her house. And whenever Jane struggles with anything, she blames herself entirely. 
She has even received psychiatric and medical diagnosis that proves she has problems unrelated to the cult because other people outside of the cult also receive these diagnoses. So the cult is obviously not a contributing factor. It can never be the fault of the cult or the belief system she is clinging to because the belief system is what gave and gives her life. Yeah, I wrote that. <laughs> I, wrote that. Pretty powerful. I haven't read it in a while. So that's it's powerful. It's fun to yeah. hear your words uh, read back to you by other people. Yeah, pretty powerful stuff. So what prompted you to write about adoption as being cult-like? Prompted me? Well, I mean, goodness, anyone who's been around adoption land long enough and is producing content knows there really isn't usually a prompt. It's like this general force that we're always waking up and suiting up for to face every day. And, um, you know, I, I do want to say this pretty much everything that I have ever written. Um, and I, I bet this would probably go for most other adoptees, um, and other displaced people as well who are working in this way. Um, when you finally see me write it on a piece of paper, it's because I've been having this conversation with other adopted people for a long time. It's because I've been thinking about it for a long time. It's because I've been watching the patterns for a long time. And so I wouldn't, I don't, I can't even remember what specifically prompted me to write that. Um, so I just, finally, I reached this boiling point and I'm like, I'm going to write it. Finally, I'm going to just write it. I'm going to write it. Cause I see it so clearly in this moment. I've got it in my head. I got to sit down and get it down. And that is generally my writing process. I'm pretty impulsive. So, um, I don't even remember specifically what it was, but I will tell you what I did not expect was that that was one of my most shared pieces of writing in all these years of doing this. So it really resonated to me. I mean, it didn't just resonate to me. To me, it appears it resonated. Absolutely, it does. It's really interesting that you say that because I was telling Lynn that these have been the most popular podcast episodes like there's been a lot of response to these episodes that I didn't really see when we were just talking about the laws and how the laws affect adoptees. Mm. And the more that I was doing the podcast and the more I was working with other adoptees on projects, the more I was seeing that it's not, if we don't change the way people think about adoption, we're not going to change the laws because it's that narrative right. that holds everybody captive and and keeps the movement from occurring. It's until you have to change the belief patterns. And so there's there's all this mythology and all these tropes around adoption. And you talk about some of those in in your article. Do I? <laughs> You do well for, you the, gonna, for the illustration. Yeah. The illustration really illustrates it beautifully. Yeah, it really yeah. does. I mean, I you know, I I had a thought while you were talking. Um, you know, when you finally someone gives you a word or an analogy for something that you've always experienced, but you've never had the word for it, and you've never had the analogy for it, and all of a sudden you go like, you know, the lens just comes into focus, and you say, "Whoa!" Like I remember I had a when I learned the term gaslighting, okay, that was an enormous, I and mean, obviously it was an enormous thing culturally as well. 
there's finally this word that explains what that interchange is, is between two people. And then once you have the word and some, an anchor for it, you can see it now, you can identify it. And so I really think that talking about um, beliefs around adoption, the process of adoption and comparing it to a cult is one of those things. Oh yeah, you're right. It is. It's a really strict belief. Oh, it's right. You're not allowed to step outside because you're seen as bad and evil. There's a, a near religious um, uh, attitude. Even very, I've written about this as well, that even very secular adopters, I was raised by atheist, progressive, very, very, very secular adopters. I did not have what a lot of other adoptees have. And they still held and in that world there was still held an almost religious um view of adoption what it is what it does how it functions and outcomes for adoptees without actually ever talking to adoptees to see what their real outcomes were yeah, yeah. it's so much it's so much correlates to religion the adoption quote machine and how we're all the mythology and how we're all taught that adoption you know it can only be a good thing and unquestioned good for your this is for your better life on and on and on we we all know the tropes we don't even have to repeat them right. <laughs> right. And, but but the religious piece um the framework of just religion in general i think fits nicely around um adoption and for me that moment you talk about where the lens came in is when i was watching the vow on hbo mm-hmm. and listening to a little bit culty the podcast and oh, the vow with um yeah, next, yeah, next that, um, Jesse Pinkman. Shoot, what's his name? But the cult, um, right? The cult in yeah, like upstate yeah. Washington. Okay, yeah. Mark Vicente, he has a podcast, and Sarah okay. and Nippy at a little bit culty. Yeah. So I think Andy and I started listening to that about the same time. And the more I kept hearing it, and the more she and I kept talking, the more we're like, oh my God, it's adoption. Yeah. And that was before I read your article. So then I started Googling right. and then I found your article, Rebecca. And of course I found a lot of your videos that you made and other things that really correlated. I was like, yes, it's a thing. It's a thing. It is a thing. <laughs> I, you know, I find that I was saying that a little bit earlier too, that what I find very interesting is that in among adoptees and in what some people will call community, I really don't like that word for this, <laughs> for this collection of adoptees spread out across the internet, et cetera. Um, but for lack of a better word. Um, I find that <clears throat> really a lot of our work is, is, is interactive. Like everything I've written, as I've said before, it really does stand on the shoulders of adoptees that came before me and started this thinking and started speaking out and being brave. And I really, when I write, I really try to think of it in the same way, like to produce, like create even more solid ground for more adoptees to come in and stand on my shoulders and to do their work and to keep building upwards. It's a very collective in that way. And I guess ironically, a lot of people will see that and they go, well, you guys are the cult. I've actually been accused of being a, a cult leader more than once. So much so that I actually in my, sometimes in my writing bio, I will put, I'm an unemployed cult leader. Yeah, um, <laughs> on your Twitter description, it just made me laugh because yeah, it's so it's, funny. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. Well, I because I people, that outside view, they look at us and like what what you're saying is so shocking. Obviously, you're creating this very, you know, wrong and evil set of views, and it's like, oh goodness, the chasm between right. us is very great. We want to break break down that thinking of that adoption is just wonderful and perfect. 
and you know that we're going to get pushback on that and and to me you being called a cult a cult leader is an actual example of gaslighting yes right we're trying to say that adoption has culty aspects and here's the bite model here's the things we've pulled off the bite model which we didn't create you know a cult expert created and here's all the ways that adoption um, mimic all of these things on the bite model yeah oh that can't be true you're just a cult leader right you know, right it's interesting when you say you know we didn't create the bite model part of part of for me being able to recognize the cult ish cult-like aspects of the adoption narrative were things that i was taught in my abnormal psych class when i was getting mm. my psych degree and there's almost this fetishization of adopted people mm -hmm. and of adoption and you know that those fetishes are come into play from a really young age you know we develop them from associations that we have when we're very small and then they become so pervasive and so difficult for a person to abandon once they've developed that and mm. for me watching the interactions between adoptees and non-adoptees in places like Twitter where any challenge to that narrative would set off these just yeah like, just horrible reactions from people and it became obvious to me that no matter how much evidence adoptees were presenting to people the more difficulty the other person even had hearing what the adoptee had to say it's like they needed to cling to that belief and there are so many principles in psychology that that apply to that there's that whole kind of fetishization there especially when it comes to transracial adoption there's this fetishization of adoptees and you know i've seen it i've seen people walk up to parents or you know people who've adopted asian um, children and the way they talk about these children it's just horrifying and then there's that principle that if you and i can't remember the name of it if anybody remembers it please let me know in psychology where if somebody has a belief and it's challenged the person is more likely to become excuse me more entrenched in that belief than they were excuse me i'm not dunning kruger i'm looking it up right now it's it's i think it's yeah. the so it's the Dunning-Kruger effect. Okay, thank you. I, I'm terrible about remembering the names of all the different people. Dunning-Kruger effect is a cognitive bias whereby people with low ability or expertise, so these are people that think they understand adoption because they watch some movies and know somebody, <laughs> or experience regarding a certain type of task or area of knowledge tend to overestimate their ability or knowledge. And that is definitely a part of it. And we, again, didn't come up with that. This is not adoptees. Some of these philosophers and thinkers may be adoptees, but the fact is these are generally accepted principles in psychology and psychiatry. These are not things that we just, as one of my friends likes to say, pulled out of our ass. Yeah. Well, I also have it on good authority that there are 
um, a very, there's a large percentage of adopters in academia as well. So I know, I remember recently on Twitter before I kind of went on my 87th sabbatical um, uh, where there was a study that was put out and it was by uh, an adoptive parent and, you know, it was only done through interviewing the parents of little children adoptees. Was this Australian? Uh, it was a collection of, it was a collection of papers because I know that my friend Michelle Merritt, who is um, the silenced adoptee was also in that collection of articles, uh, her paper about, um, about uh, trauma of separation trauma. Um, and um, I just remember that like, you know, like no matter what we said, we couldn't say like, how is this, this is not quantifiable. You're asking the parents of little children, you know, uh, there is no work done asking the adult adoptees. Um, and in, in academia, uh, where a lot of ideas are fostered and grown and then used, then like packaged to become best practices for agencies, social service agencies, things like that, you know, you see the whole pipeline of, 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 of who's related to adoption and how and where they are and where are they affecting change and where are they doing their work and in and how society, they're benefiting, how they're benefiting too. Right. Or how they benefited. And, um, you know, I, I put, honestly, I put Nancy Verrier in that carrot category. I put, I put, uh, I put the primal wound in that category as well as definitely some, you know, an adopter making sense of her own experience from that perspective of things. It's not that it's not the adoptee's perspective. It's just not. And that's, that is, even when we get really close, right? Like with a, like with primal wound, even when we get really, really close, the narrative is still held and gatekept by non-adopted people. Yep. I felt that when I read it, in fact, I didn't finish reading it for the same reason, because there was something that really irritated me that Nancy was calling us, saying all sorts of things about us as adoptees. Mm -hmm. Like she had all of these opinions. I'm like, what are your opinions based on your own personal experience? Correct. Or is this research? And it really made me angry that she had labeled us a certain way and put us in this box of this is how all adoptees will be. And I just closed the book and put it back on the shelf. I, I'm more apt to listen to Betty Jean Lifton because yes. she is a psychologist and I'm glad I found her books long before the primal wound in the library, thank, thankfully, before I ever found Adoption Land. So she was my basis and I mm-hmm. held on to every word she said, like it, they were like crumbs, um, followed the breadcrumbs of Betty Jean Lifton in order to begin my healing journey. Oh, it's amazing. I, you know, I really think that, that the remedy and it's a slow remedy. I don't know that any of us are going to see it, frankly, in our lifetime. I'd like to, I like seeing the growth because I do see it, but I think ultimately the remedy is going to be that, that we become the loudest voice. And not only do we become the loudest voice, but we become the authoritative voice and that we no longer need Oh, but we need that because if the adoptive parent is the one, but they're more likely to listen because it's an adoptive parent or they're more likely to listen because they're not adopted. So therefore, you know, this assumption that we're immediately so blinded by our own trauma, emotions, whatever it is that we can't be um, a trustworthy historians of our own lives. 
Absolutely. Right? That's the you know, credibility deficit that we well, immediately right. admire if we say, and I'm an adoptee. If I don't mention that I'm adopted, if I just say, well, I have a psych degree and blah, 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 people will listen. But the minute I say, and I'm a late discovery adoptee, well, you know, you need help. Right. And, 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 and for some reason, here's, but here's the, the irony of this, which is just hilarious. I was thinking about this right now. So I am so blinded by my own trauma as an adoptee that I can't possibly be an accurate historian of my own life as lived through adoption, right? And yet, same hand, adoption's not traumatic. What are you talking about? So did it really mess me up so that I can't even be accurate in my own assessment of my own life and what adoption is, does, and, and how it works? Or like, which one is it? So ultimately what it is, and that goes back to Dunning-Kruger, no matter what I say, if I am speaking to someone who holds the beliefs of the cult, which are not to be questioned, they are not malleable in any way, they are not soft, they are not open. If I speak outside of that, I am anathema. I'm shunned, I'm out. You know, we can use any cult terminology we want. I'm, I'm, uh, what's, what's the Scientology word? It's a good one. Disconnected or, I'm crumb. You're suppressive. You're a suppressive, I'm a suppressive person. That, yes, yeah. I'm suppressive. Yeah. Um, and ultimately what it is, is, is that way of thinking and being is just a way to not allow our voice in. Nothing will threaten the narrative. And, yeah. ev- it, and you know, it, it, I, I just find that very funny that the people who are on the outside look, calling me a cult leader. That's like, crazy. Okay. I haven't heard that ever, but I'm sure we will, right, Andy? We keep doing these interviews oh i consider it a badge consider it a badge of honor and and we have our own cult we can start our own cult yeah oh there we go the leader yeah sure oh yeah Hmm. okay (laughs) but i love that you point out the the flaw in the logic there rebecca because you'll see periodically i'll post on my adoption files page a link to something about logical fallacies because when i see the arguments that people present the flaws in the logic are so glaring and yeah. they don't they don't want to or they can't see it because it serves a purpose for them to maintain the mythology to maintain the narrative and one of the reasons why doing this series was so interesting to me is to explore why why do they need to cling to that narrative Mm. so tenaciously what is what does it protect if we abandon this narrative what does it challenge Mm. i I think it's money okay I, i think it always goes back to money but for your average person let's talk about your average person who isn't gonna adopt they don't have the money or they don't have the interest or they don't qualify though that doesn't seem to stop an awful lot of people from adopting i uh, let's these are the people you know that you'll talk to and they'll say well i have a friend who or i have yeah. a cousin who or i saw a story on dateline or whatever and so adoption is is fabulous and i'm not going to hear anything else to challenge it for that person what is the motivation in protecting the adoption narrative? They're not profiting from it 
uh, directly financially. They are indirectly because they don't probably don't realize how much of our tax money goes to support programs that the government wants adoption to happen so that those monies don't have to be funneled into those programs anymore. But your average person who just has zero connection, why? Why do they need to? What does it protect for them? Because they don't they don't have zero connection. Okay. They live and exist in a society that has an incredibly strong and prevalent belief about what a family is, what a family isn't, about what adoption is, about what adoption isn't, about what quote abuse is, about what quote neglect is. And so they don't have zero skin in the game. They are just completely unaware <laughs> of what is just, you know, an assumptive belief that they have. So it's lack of self insight. And not only it's, it's like, when you come to people who are just uninitiated, but they live in this society, they live in this narrative, it comes to them through everything through the books that they read, growing up through watching television through the news, the movies, the, the postman's adopted child, everything, right? <clears throat> and so they come at it. When you say something else, it's like you're saying the, the, the earth is flat. And, and so it's that prevalent. So I think this whole idea, like what's, what is even your game, man? You've got zero skin in the game, but they don't because literally without even knowing it, the way we have defined and the way we treat and view our view of adoption, not mine, obviously, or yours, <laughs> but the common mainstream narrative is part of the scaffold of their entire worldview and understanding of love, family, relationship, justice, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Thank you. I'm so glad that you explained it that way because that makes, I mean, that makes so much sense. We're challenging the social structure. We're challenging the fabric of the culture. Capitalism. And how, yeah. And how the culture. Commodification, the commodification of human beings. I mean, if, cause if capitalism is an assumption, then you're not going to see adoption as, as, as commodification in some sort of evil way. You know, I don't, Everyone thinks they have skin in this game. They really do. So much so that we that they can't understand how a grown adult adopted person would think differently. Because really they st still see adopt many people can't even imagine us as adults, right? We all know that. I mean, how many times have I had someone tell me in a comment section back when I was a little more boots on the ground stomping in the you know comment section of articles which I really really ever do anymore um but like where they're you know oh when you have kids you'll you'll figure it out I'm like lady <laughs> I have three teenagers like I like what do you mean when I have kids like they're assuming oh well when you finally get up and out of your parents house I've had so many people say things like that just based on what I'm saying they think I can't possibly be an adult I must just be a rebellious teenager as opposed to a healed, thoughtful, done all this work of self-insight, come to this other place, having autonomous, and guess what? Contradictory views. I hold a lot of contradictory views within myself. I, I can now see them as not being contradictory, but that's another thing with the cult belief. Everything is very simple. Everything is very simplistic. It's exactly this way or not. Uh, you know, 
the other response, oh, well, just because you had a bad experience, I've never said I had a bad adoption. I've never once said gaslighting for sure. Yeah. And I've never once said it either. It's like, how can you not fathom that I can hold two things that you like, they, they can't imagine that I can actually still have a relationship with my adoptive family. And, you know, I didn't have the religious trauma as we were just talking about. I didn't, I didn't have some of these abject horrors that so many other adoptees. And yet I can still evaluate a system of which I was a part and subject to, and I can, and want to abolish it. I can hold both of these truths in one hand. That's anti-cult because it's a complex view. Yeah, because cults are very much characterized by that black and white kind of thinking. And having been involved in that myself as an adult and coming out of that, I think that also helps to be able to see that it is much more complex than people want it to be. People want these simple answers. It's comforting. It makes the world easier to live in. And I did kind of want to return to what you said about you didn't grow up in that religious container so far in most of our episodes you know emma with her psychologist and then with greg you know talking about how you know impactful religion is for a lot of adoptees you didn't have that experience nope so your parent but your parents still bought into that i mean to some extent yeah that kind of cult-like aspects of the adoption narrative and and from what you've said about the way we grow up in this culture it's Mm -hmm. almost like it would be impossible for a prospective adoptive parent to escape from a lot of those attitudes yeah I mean I actually just recently made a tiktok on this um uh about Yeah. So, I mean, I was raised incredibly open about being adopted, but I still was given the, they were just young and they loved you so much. They wanted you to have the best situation, you know, um, I, a lot of that stuff. Um, but my parents were incredibly open with me about, I could ask me questions that I want. It was always known that I could search. Um, I could talk about it. I I was surrounded by other adopted kids growing up, uh, which was something I, I know not, not a lot of other people have have experienced um uh and but still and this is what my little video was about i went home recently and i ran yeah i went and had breakfast with a dear childhood friend of mine right and i hadn't seen her in several years although we're in contact on social media we met up for breakfast she met my biological sister it was really fun and she says you know i gotta tell you when you went into reunion with your family i ran into your dad on the street adoptive dad and he just said he said, oh, it's just so weird that she found her family because she never really had any, any interest in knowing who they were. He's like, it's great. But just, we were surprised because she's never expressed the interest. And she looked at him and said, are you kidding? Like she was obsessed. She was absolutely hundred percent obsessed with knowing who she was and where she came from. She used to pretend she was from all these different places, you know, like, and so, and, and it's, she looked, she's like, how could he have not known that? And I'm like, because even when your parents are incredibly open, you still live in this world with those cultic beliefs. So even if you get a situation where in your home, maybe they're saying the right thing, they're not saying the right thing at school. They're not saying the right thing on television. They're not saying the right thing when you randomly tell someone you're adopted, 
you know, or whatever. It's, it's like, so you still, I adoptive parents can do the very best thing that they think that they're doing and try to help the child feel safe and open to, to be honest about their feelings. But ultimately we're not just facing them. It's not just them. They're not magicians. You know what I mean? We still have to face this society. We still have to face those jackholes on the Facebook comment sections of an article if we dare ever want to engage in this conversation. Yeah, I actually saw that TikTok, Rebecca. And, oh, did you? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I did. And I was like, this is great. This is a great illustration of how, and it made me think so much of my adoptive mom, how mm. she thinks she knows me so well, yeah. but she just did she missed a huge part of me, you know, but our survival, yours, Lynn, mine, yours, Andy, our survival in many ways in this society, especially when we were very young and insecure and literally no solid ground that we're standing on. Our survival is dependent on adhering to that narrative because it's what makes people smile back at us. It's what people want to be warm towards us. It's when people want to welcome us in and want to talk more with us. It's when we're reflecting back what they need to hear. And we become masters at this. We are the missionaries until we're not. The great chameleon. The missionaries. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it's for me, because I didn't know that I was adopted growing up. Yes, that's right. People have said to me, well, you're lucky you didn't know. And I think okay I can't was I lucky that I didn't no. know and I'll just know <laughs> and that's but that's the thing is like I'll try to think about it and I think but you know what I thought I belonged to this family because that's what they were telling me I didn't feel it so I felt like a horrible mm. horrible person that I did not feel what I saw other obviously biologically related families yeah what they felt for each other. You know, I felt like a yeah. monster because I looked at my little brother who was my adoptive parents, biological child and felt nothing for this person. And I wasn't anything like them. So I spent all my time trying to be like them because that's what I was told I needed to do you know my adoptive mother would say things to me like I can't believe any child of mine would behave this way I can't believe any child of mine would like this wow. I can't believe a child of mine would like that and I would think oh my god I am so bad yeah because I don't like these things that they like or, you know, I'm too fidgety. I don't sit still enough. I like sports, but I'm a, you know, I present as a girl and I'm not supposed to like sports. I'm supposed to, I'm supposed to like dolls. I hate dolls. Like there were so many things that just did not feel right. Mm -hmm. That for me finding out other, other than the tremendous sense of betrayal and the pain from that, was a relief to find out. Oh, because it answered your questions. Like why? Yeah, it was a relief to finally be able to say, I'm not related to these people. Mm, it's, yeah. It's not, it's normal that I'm not a tiny little bird. This is, you know. I mean, I find that interesting because I think, okay, so as someone who doesn't even remember being told, like we were that open about it, like I don't 
have any memory of being told. It was just always part of the language of our family. Um, and I still felt that I was bad, that there was something really wrong with me, that I was supposed to be more like these people because adoption doesn't matter. It's not supposed to matter. Um, that clearly I'm just broken, you know? And then for me, that the aunt was when I finally met my biological family. And I was like, oh, <laughs> this person that I am and this way that I think, and even the way that I speak in a lot of ways, a lot of these things actually has a context, yeah. you know, but even if you are told that you're adopted your whole life and you know this, it's not supposed to matter. You are given, even in a very progressive environment, you know, without all the heavy guilt trip, God, you know, Jesus is adopted to or Moses or whatever, even without that, okay, you still have this, you're only allowed to question this much. You can, you can be curious up until the point you still understand who your real parents are. Um, as long as you don't reject and that your adoptive parents are still the center of everything, you can, you know, you can talk about it as long and, and you can even say you struggle a little bit, as long as ultimately, you know, you never speak against the entire system as a whole, you know, there are, there's parameters. And yeah. so what I find what a lot of, um, adoptive parents try to do in particular is they try to find these parameters and they're willing to stretch the parameter a little bit. You know what I mean? Well, sure. You can ask, you can say you have trauma and you can do this and that, but ultimately there's still a bottom line that you must cling to. Yeah. There is still a bottom line that you must cling to. And that bottom line is the system must be preserved. Yeah. So instead of your picture of Joseph Smith or Jesus or the Dalai Lama, or I mean, I'm, I don't know a Dalai Lama. I say Muhammad without anybody being <laughs> mad at me in Islam. Um, instead of well, having, just Joseph Smith, let's stick with that. Okay. Instead of having your picture of Joseph Smith okay. on the wall and your picture yeah. of the temple, you right. just put the church of adoption up on the wall. And as long as you turn toward the church of adoption at the end of the day and do your obeisance and your reverence towards the church of adoption and the narrative, then you're safe within that container. But if, you, but if you take the picture off the wall and you bin it, you throw it in the trash, then, you know, you've gone too far. I think it's more like that, like, like if you want to get, cause that's a really good analogy. Let's get even more specific about it. Okay. You've got the church of adoption or the temple of adoption, whatever we want to call it, the, the sanctuary of adoption. And it's a building. And that is where love happens. That's where care happens. That's where family is built. And a lot of us, you know, we say we don't want this building anymore. We don't want to worship in a building. We don't want these very important sacred activities like love, relationship, family building. We don't want them happening in that building anymore. They don't belong in the building. We can worship in the woods. We can create our own forms, right? And people cannot let go of the damn building. They cannot imagine that a child could receive loving external care outside of that building. <laughs> Great yeah. point. Great point. Absolutely. And and so I think they hear us going, we're burning the building down. And they react. Oh, children be loved. I know. What about all the unwanted children? What about the children that need that, that can't, they're in an abusive home? It's like, you just think they should stay in their abusive home. Oh, it's like the, the exhausting, you know, like I've never once said that. I just think that it can happen outside of that building. 
children can be rescued from abusive homes. They can be placed in external care. They can be loved. They can be all of these things. They can feel belonging. All of it can happen outside of that damn building. Absolutely. Yes. I just had somebody the other day come on my page and go, well, it's still better than them all being killed, right? And I'm like, did I ever at any point, did anyone in this conversation mention Mm -hmm. that either they're adopted or we would like them all to be killed? No, that, you know, that never happened. And yet when you try to suggest, like you're saying, that a child can be cared for outside of the boundaries of plenary adoption, people lose their minds. And not only can they, they can be better cared for it's proven that kinship care is way more effective. Yeah. I, I would encourage, um, I, that is, that is something we say a lot. And I would just say like what, one thing I'm trying to be very careful of in my own kind of thinking and world right now is that not to be simplistic in, in what I think are solutions either. And, um, there is a really great creator on TikTok who was raised in, um, guardianship not in um oh i want to find their name um i can find it for you after you can put it in the show notes if you like but they uh were very they were very involved in adoptee spaces and foreign foster youth spaces on tiktok but you know hesitant to speak out because we really tout legal guardianship as this ultimate solution to things and finally they started speaking out about it and not, they, they still say, listen, it's better than adoption. I see the issues that you adoptees are talking about with adoption, with losing all autonomy to, you know, and access to your own identity and um, et cetera. But they were saying, but also here's this experience I had. This is also not perfect. And I think ultimately, you know, I'm getting older now. <laughs> like I, I'm trying to stay away from simplicity in all of this because it's a complex, it's human. We're talking about humanity and systems and family systems. Um, there's no magic that can occur. And there's not one answer. There's not one answer. Absolutely. Yeah, there's so many different um, answers and, and the, it'll change depending on the family situation. Absolutely. And then a lot of people will throw that back in your face. Well, you don't know my situation. So therefore adoption is good for my kids. And I'm like, your child may have needed external loving care. They may have needed to be a part of family that was theirs. They may have been no other options, but you cannot tell me that in the end, the legal severance and the, the, the inability for that child when they're grown to make their own decisions about who they want to identify as and with, you know, you know, my, my identity is erased. I don't have any options. Like you don't think that, that adoptees should have the right to annul their adoptions. Yeah. For me, as because I work in the legal field, I see it in in terms of legalities. So in Ohio, their legal guardianship isn't what everybody in the adoption community says it is. It's more right. for incompetent people. Yeah. And, oh, interesting. You know, legal custody is more of, okay, I have custody of you, but it's not as permanent as adoption. So I see it as let's just abolish the adoption legal status and then still give kids proper care that can happen well it can it can happen uh and then the question is through what channels in my opinion um there should be absolutely zero private adoption um i there should be absolutely zero pre-birth matching there should be absolutely 
zero, you know, uh, birth mom seeking on the internet. Um, I, you know, these are not women walking into adoption agencies or responding to an ad when they're feeling vulnerable, uh, you know, a Facebook page with these very wealthy looking people that want to just take care of your baby and you'll be part of their lives forever, blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, these, these women are not usually the women who's, who are going to be abusing their kids if they're before birth, even thinking about this and so worried about the outcome for their child, you know, and also I get really upset about the fact that so much of what's deemed abuse is really just poverty. They call it neglect. And instead of supporting these families, we're helping ourselves to their children. And it's, it's a complex, what is the answer? I, 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 I often say that I'm an abolitionist. You know, I, I really believe in abolishing the system and I do. And then somebody I really respect said this, they said, I support, I still say I support reform, all reforms, including abolition. And so I actually, that was really eye-opening for me. I was like, you know what? Absolutely. Because as we work for abolition, we also have to do these little reform activities on the way. It's a complex, multifaceted issue. Yeah. And all hitting it, hitting it at all those angles and taking incremental steps with the eye of abolishment to me is, is key. Well, and I think that, you know, that goes back to that cult-like attitude of the black and white thinking is this or that good or it's evil. When you look at the complexities that have to be addressed in order to achieve reform, abolition, a a new narrative around how we perceive family and childcare and the supports that we give people in our society. I, you know, that's, that's a part of it. And people don't want to address that. That's hard. That's going to be, But how can we even get there? If we can't even have a conversation without three sentences in being told to find the nearest bridge, how can we have a complex conversation if we can't get past that? And when I worked on legislation in Vermont, um, we faced, we came in facing a lot of ignorance. We were called before we walked in and met everyone at the, in the legis, uh, the judiciary committee, we were called those people. Oh, jeez. We were like, they're going to, these people are just going to show up on their, on their biological family's doorsteps and like disrupt their lives. Like there's all these assumptions. Now we were able to change everybody's minds very quickly once they met us in face, because they have to sit and actually have the conversation. But that's a rarity that that you have an opportunity like that, where they have to sit and listen to you, like in a legislative body, you know? um, Absolutely. Yeah. And right now I know. Right. And, and in Georgia right now, they're they're waiting to hear if the record's open. And I know some conversations have been held and they've been successful in educating. And I think that's what we do when we're doing reform. We're, that's what we're doing right here, having this conversation. Yeah, maybe, absolutely. Maybe someone will listen. Maybe they'll change their mind. Even if adoption is never abolished, someone might think of it differently and think about a way to protect a child without having to sever their entire genealogy identity and all the other things that come along with it. Like we, you know, lived with. And I think what you say about meeting the people in person is really important. That's part of when they talk about dealing with issues like racism 
Yeah. It's where that ignorance of the humanity of other people and the, the lack of knowledge of just who they are and being able to be in relationship with them. It's a barrier to creating uh, a, you know, a, a more equal society you know it's one of the things they they say like when groups of people actually come into thoughtful contact with one another mm -hmm. and can have conversations that's when you begin to tear down those barriers you know because we sure. we talk about part of schooling is you know multicultural education and part of what we talked about is the fact that when they've done studies where they bring people together and they just talk with each other, you can begin to build those bridges. Sure. I mean, I mean, that makes me think of a couple of things. One is that I would say that the people that I know that I've been able to affect the most and have them change their worldview on adoption um, are people that I know personally. Um that remain open to what I had to say and didn't get defensive and have, I, I still to this day, someone will come, I was at a, a adoptive family funeral and one of my cousin's spouses was like, oh, I read everything you write. You totally changed my mind. I'm like, really? You're over there? Like you've been chilling. like, yeah, for years, years. I read everything. And I, I, okay. And it's because they had that connection, that connection to me where I get very discouraged uh, sometimes is that just getting together and talking, I wish that was enough. I I think it can be a good start, but if certain people cannot see or acknowledge their privilege and power in the situation and be able to work from that place, I see it happen a lot in adoption land as well among adoptees where in particular white adoptees cannot, they don't, they grew up with this assumptive privilege. They can't even see it because they've not and then they work in that way in our spaces and create havoc. And then when it's pointed out, it's like, wait, what, why are you, you know? And that I see that same, we do this to each other. And I see that same thing happening when we do it outside. We talk to these other groups of people, you know, like if, if people cannot even see that they might have privilege by being the non-adopted one, even if they're not an adopted parent, they just, have this biological privilege. They know who they are. They know where they came from. They've looked in the eyes, whether they were jerks or not. They they know who they are. Their their birth certificate's intact. They're living in the country they're from. They don't their their citizenship is not at risk because their parents didn't do the right paperwork. Whatever it is, if they cannot acknowledge their privilege over us, then how can we have the conversation with them? And until they're willing to drop and say it's not exactly the same, it's there's not a, a ton of hope. It's because, you know, it's not exactly the same. The amount of people that have come to me and said, man, you know, I could always tell you weren't related to your family. Like there was always something. And now that you, uh, and I'm was shocked to hear that. Oh, you could really see it. And it uh, made them see their own privilege in the situation, be able to have those conversations with me. And I just think oh. that needs to do better for us. And it, within adoption land, we need to do better regarding our acknowledgement of privilege and awareness of intersectionality as well. Oh yeah, no, I totally, I completely agree because I would follow conversations and see, I, you know, especially with like transracial adoptees, 
Yeah. You know, white adoptees who don't see that we have privilege in being in a same race family. We don't deal with the racism either inside or outside of our families. We don't have the same kind of identity issues. And there's definitely a need for us to address the unconscious and the conscious biases that we have. And I think non-adoptive people have these unconscious biases because they've just been immersed in this stuff yep. for their entire lives. Yeah, when you were talking about um, your legislative work and how they referred to you as those people, yeah, I, I would like to discuss what it is that they saw about us as outsiders, maybe. Could you maybe talk a little bit about that? Why they, you know- Called us those first, people? Yeah, why those people, why, what was that about, do you think? Well, this is before we came in and actually talked to them. This is when they right. were looking at the legislation that was proposed, which was about opening birth records, obviously. And they immediately were all of their fears about what could possibly happen, the mayhem that would ensue. You know, that these people, these adopted people were all of a sudden going to get the names of their parents and in their assumptions, they thought that the ceiling is for their protection. It's that's a privacy matter that it's. Um, uh, and so I, it's mythology, really, because why, why why aren't they just satisfied with it? It's the same being adopted and the family is the same as being born. Why should they care? It's just a person. It's just DNA. It doesn't matter, you know, and also not thinking or understanding DNA, <laughs> because one of the things we had to point out to them was you think you're being protective of these people by keeping the record sealed. But let me tell you what happens when we take a DNA test. Yeah. Third absolutely. cousin Sally is calling second cousin Donnie. Everybody <laughs> knows the adoptee is out and looking before the person they're looking for. Yep. Exactly. Go right to them directly. You know, yeah, and if they more private. Again, I cry and I don't contact them again because I'm not a dickwad. Yeah. You know. <laughs> well, that happened with my uh, with my paternal family. It took me over 20 years. I finally had to do a DNA test. I had to find a search angel. I was contacting all kinds of different people whose names were popping up in my matches, who actually had family trees saying, yeah. hey, I think I'm related, to, you know, this shows that I'm related to you. You're my second cousin. I'm trying to figure out how we're related to one another. They're asking me, well, who are your parents and your grandparents? And I'm going, I don't know. And so <laughs> tell me how private that is. Tell oh, I me know. how private that is. And one, one second cousin refused to respond. And somebody else who was actually a more distant cousin, who's like a fifth cousin, is the family genealogist. And he got in touch with me and he's like, well, you know, they've already dealt with a situation like yours. So he doesn't feel comfortable talking with you because that's already happened to him. Like I am a natural disaster or something. Right. I've never met any of these people. As as soon right. as they said he doesn't want any contact with you, I was like, okay, I won't contact him anymore. Yeah, like well, I really want to embarrass myself by going after someone that doesn't want contact with me. I mean, I'll be devastated and talk to my adoptee friends about it, but I'm not gonna... And so the, those people really came from that is, is lack of understanding, lack of awareness, and also overconfidence in the things they think they know. 
And right? that shows the stigma, what you were talking about too, Andy, shows the yeah. stigma that's placed upon our head just for something that happened to us outside yeah. of our say, we have a stigma well, for those people. And it's just bonkers now because everybody knows about me now. Everyone knows. Like, I know they yeah. talk about me because I've been told they talk about me. Right. <laughs> and I know that they talk about my father now. And I know they talk about my mother now. In fact, right. because of the way everything happened, my mother won't speak to me anymore because all of the relatives know she had a baby when she was a teenager. Now that didn't have to be necessary. Like if I had just grown up knowing who my parents were, it would have been just like, okay, this is who I am. Right. Yeah. I think that's a great example of how adoption creates even more problems than it solves. Right. Well, and also, you know, what I find very interesting too, and we were talking about how I think a lot of, a lot of adoptive parents in particular, but also facilitators, because there is a very high interest in keeping the system intact, keeping the building, you know, where we do the work. Um, that, that they will look at, you know, cause we're all like, I'm tail end baby scoop, right? I, I, I'm assuming you guys are baby scoop adoptees. So, um, and, uh, even though mine is really not a typical baby scoop story at all, but, um, still that's the era. So people will go, it's like, you know, it's not like that anymore. It's not like that anymore. It's like, okay, we may have painted the building a different color. We may have replaced the windows. We may have put up new curtains and we may have different visiting hours, but the building is still, fuck, excuse me, still there. We're allowed to swear on the, on the, court. yeah, let it fly. I'm totally I'm okay with it. <laughs> so the building is still the same fucking building. And that's still where we have to go. That's where it all happens. Otherwise you're dead. You're on the outside. And so until until we can get people to see that you, that we can envision something outside of this building, we're, we're, we're not even having the same conversation. The conversation we think we're having with people isn't happening from their point of view. They're having a completely different conversation. Yeah. And that's a good point. I, that's one of the characteristics again of cults is that they have their own language and they define words differently then people outside of the cult define those words. The so map of reality. Have, map yeah, of you reality. can have a conversation with people. I used to have conversations with my in-laws who belong to a rather prominent cult-like religious group and think that I was having the same conversation that they yeah. were having. And it wasn't until later when my husband, who left this group a long, long time ago, took me aside and said, you do know that when they say the word salvation, this is what they mean. And I went, <laughs> no, I did not know that. And when they say Jesus is the son of God, you do realize they also believe Satan is the son of God, right? And I went, no, I didn't realize that. So there, yeah, you can have conversations with people and you're saying completely different things and understanding things in a completely different way. And I was going to say, not only do we feel like, you know, maybe we've upgraded the building, we've updated it. So it, it reflects right. the, the current fads and fashions. Right. We've also built out buildings. Right. Because we've contracted as governments with the adoption industry to provide post-adoption services 
we've made them the gatekeepers of adoptees right. information you we still have to go into the building you still you still have to go to the annex or whatever it is you can't it's and that's and that's ultimately what it is as long as and go back to the cult in my analogy right it can never be the fault of that organization or that system. It always has to be futzing with the system, making it a little bit new, putting the paint on it, building the annex, look, adding extra services. But we may never, ever, ever talk about leaving it completely and building something new. Not maybe not a building, maybe it's a yurt. I don't know. Maybe it's an ocean, <laughs> an ocean cruise liner. I don't know, but it, you know, ultimately, it, 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 whatever is next, it needs to be built by people who actually have lived this, who have lived this. It so has to be, you know, we do not need people to write our scriptures <laughs> anymore. You know what I'm saying? For the analogy, yeah, yeah. we can sing our own songs yeah so lynn do you have any questions that you would like to ask rebecca as we wrap up today so becca do you have anything additional that you would really like to leave the listeners with when it comes to well i would say that i am actually really pleased to see the growth and the movement that has happened since I first started stomping, you know, in around 2016, 2017. And, you know, TikTok didn't exist then. And um, man, we were a much smaller quote unquote community than we are now. And um, it's just, I don't know, it's really incredibly heartwarming to see that because when you're it's like the frog in the boiling water you know you don't really see the change until you look back on it and I honestly I have seen change happen I have seen there's a lot more outspoken adoptees coming out and saying their truth now there is a much softer place for adoptees to land when they come in um there is a lot more uh public literature out there when I was looking for something to read I was on blogs. I could barely find anything. You know, I was commenting on a blog and Jill Daviau came in and scooped me up and brought me into a Facebook group because I was lost. There was no, now you put search something in, uh, you know, Google or wherever, you're going to find people talking in this way. And so I, I do see it happening. Um, it's why I started making satire because I just felt like we need to do this in a different way. We, we we repeat ourselves a lot because we're banging our heads against this wall, but you know, let's, I, I love seeing all the new content that's coming out, especially these younger adoptees, man, I am just impressed a lot. And I am so grateful to have been part of helping to, you know, build and develop this ever growing, ever morphing, ever changing nebulous collection of adopted and displaced people. Yeah, it's been amazing. Um, I got on TikTok last November. I'd been watching for a while. My son, he's a, you know, millennial and he's always trying to get me to do the latest and greatest. Yeah. So um, I decided I would start posting, try to post every day in November for National Adoption Month. Oh, good for you. So I post under the adopted genealogist and I've, I really don't 
talk to that many people, but I flip in there every now and then. And I am amazed at some of these younger adoptees who are mm -hmm. super outspoken and the way they take on the commenters who are just gaslighting them. I'm so, I'm so proud of them. I am because they're just strong. They just yeah. have the strength and, you know, um, so yeah, like you said about standing on the shoulders of the people who came before us and now we have younger advocates and I just love that. And I've seen also, you know, the laws are changing and there's a lot of movement in the legislative arena. So there's a lot to be, a lot to be positive about. So yeah, yeah, I think that's great. And I'm so excited that we got to have this conversation with you, Rebecca, because you are just super powerful in what you're doing. And I hope oh, you put, you know, put some of your TikToks under there or maybe your, um, this blog that we're talking about, the cult. Yeah, I mean, I haven't put anything on that blog in quite some time. Mostly all my content has been more on Twitter, but more on tw TikTok, which is at guaranteed happy adoptee TM, like the trademark. And um, we, I, I will say this about TikTok, uh, which is actually why I really just love it over there is that it is way more intersectional than Facebook and Instagram and all of these other places. And I think that's where it needs to be. I think that is going to determine intersectionality is going to determine the health of our movement and our awareness of it and our embracing of it. And that I see more on TikTok than anywhere else. Um, it's still not perfect in any way. There's still a lot of harm that happens. Uh, but I really encourage people to get over there and just watch, just watch these, watch those adoptees over there, man. Like I feel like a wilting flower next to so many of them. So so true. <laughs> they are just, they have wills of steel and they don't let anything stop them. Like, you yep. know, me in the beginning, I would have been probably crying and yep. <laughs> you know, logging off and not going back and going to my support group and crying about it. But, you know, they just, are, <laughs> they're just like right back at these people who are gaslighting them. And I love it. Yeah. It uh, makes it, I just want to hand it over. Like I, that's why it's so easy for me just to like go on sabbatical. They got it. <laughs> yep. they got it they got They're it holding the they fort really down do. they really <laughs> well, and do i think it's wonderful because you know as you mentioned rebecca the i the building is still there it hasn't changed you know the foundations are still in the adoption narrative and that people say it's not like that anymore those are people who are unaware that the laws are still on the books the things are still being conducted the same way. It's still coercive. It's still manipulative. It's still exploitative. It's still deceptive. And we're still and, gaslit by society. Yes. And so to see <laughs> young people who are outspoken and who are not going to take any bullshit is fabulous. And I, I am so glad that they have found an outlet to be able to speak to something that is still so pervasive. So I'm glad you're there. I'm glad Lynn is there. I'm terrified of it, but I like, <laughs> but I like, it's terrifying. It's terrifying. It's, it's terrifying. You should be. <laughs> <laughs> my daughter tried to warn me. She's like, mom, you can't handle TikTok. <laughs> well, my kids are more, my kids are mortified that I'm on TikTok. <laughs> mortified. Yeah. Mortified. I'm like, why you should follow me. Ugh. It's really, yeah. Three old ladies on a podcast, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> <laughs> At least we're not trying to dance. They can give oh, us damage. That's right. 
But yeah, it is. It's really encouraging. And I'm I'm glad that that's happening. And I think that some of the younger legislators are actually willing to listen. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. We, our legislation passed um, only one person opposed in both the Senate and the House. And that one person is the former director of Lund um, Adoption Agency, the longest running <laughs> adoption agency in Vermont. She's the former director of it. Um, we had basically unanimous support. I don't consider her dissension to be true dissension because she has her income and her entire career built on this place. Wow. So that's all ages. They all got it. When they've actually finally heard from us and they listened, they got it. All right. Well, that's what this is about is trying to get that word out there and let people know, you know, what's happening, maybe give them a new way of thinking about the adoption narrative that they hadn't considered before. And thank you so much for being here with us today, Becca. We could talk to you all day about these. Oh things. yeah, we could. <laughs> and maybe, can I just drop a plug if you're listening and you aren't involved in the legislative process, can I encourage you to write a letter to your legislator about your views on getting the state laws changed? Um, first of all, you need to know your state law. And second of all, you need to know who you should be writing but I encourage everyone to get involved. Yes. Yes, please. And also get involved with writing to your state legislator. It's not just about opening records. In fact, I would leave my records closed if we could make sure that um, internationally inter-country adoptees uh, have a guaranteed citizenship and are not at being threat of being um, deported. That is also something that we, especially those of us who have the privilege of being domestic adoptees, um, need to use our voices in that way to defend people who are afraid of even writing to their legislatures because they don't want to alert. Some people are, you know, they don't, they just have to they want to live under the radar. So we Absolutely. cannot be myopic in our advocacy to legislative sessions. And maybe we could link to the group that's working on that legislation, Andy. Yeah, there's Adoptees for Justice and mm-hmm. then Adoptees United. Adoptees United. Yeah, yeah, we're also working on it. I know I'm, you know, and I'll put my own little plug in here. I, I was investigated as an international adoptee to determine if I had a right to live in this country. That was, oh. stress, that was stressful. You think? And very confusing and had me in panic mode for a while. And those of us, there are also a number of us who are having a lot of difficulty obtaining our real IDs because we- yeah didn't have our amended birth certificates filed until after we were a year old. And that applies to both domestic and international adoptees. It's even more complicated if you're an international adoptee because you have a foreign birth certificate. So for example, my birth certificate was issued by England 13 months after I was born. So obtaining a real ID I may not be able to travel uh, by airplane (laughs) if I can't get the issue resolved. And so there are so many layers to the issues that exist for adopted people when our birth certificates are amended. So not only, you know, are we advocating for the opening of our original birth certificates, but I think there are a lot of us who are advocating that our birth certificates be retained and that instead of a new birth certificate being issued, that an adoption decree 
be issued in addition to allowing us to retain our original birth certificates? Well, there's a great little uh, TED talk about the two birth certificate issue. Um, I can send it to you if you want to attach it in your um, show notes. Yeah, that would be great. Okay. So thank you for being a guest today. Thank you for thank all the you great resources. And uh, this has been another episode of the Adoption Files. Thank you both. Thank you. Thanks, Andy. Thanks, Rebecca.